Thank you, very nice. A long time ago, the very first Royal Command performance had on it a magician. The most famous magician in London at the time was David Devant, a great magician. And in those days, well, magic was different to the way that I presented. It was a lot different. And uh, nowadays, the children look at the badge of the magician. And when they look at the badge of the magician, they see him, he's always pulling a rabbit out of something. And the children are confused. So I thought I'd go back a little way in magic and uh, present that trick to you tonight. Back to the office tomorrow. I do feel really lucky that I am not feeling that same level of dread that I usually feel thinking about going back to work. I know there are a lot of people who are staring down that first day back and just thinking, oh no, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> I, I generally feel like that, but um, I'm really, really lucky at the moment that I don't hate my job. And I've actually been convinced for about the past three months or so that it was too good to be true and I was going to get fired. I did have a listener once email me and say, Alice, you seem to spend a lot of time on this podcast and uh, I sort of wonder about your work situation. <laughs> Are you going to get fired? But not, not because of the podcast, but just for various other reasons. I thought that things were going to wrap up and I wasn't going to have that same job this year. And I was very worried because at the moment I have this amazing level of flexibility where I can do this work and I can make money and I don't hate what I have to do to make money. This is, a, this is not a situation that many people get to have for very long. And so when it looked like it was getting dicey, I thought, well, you know, I've had a good run. It's been about 18 months. Seems like it probably can't last forever. And the day before my birthday, I was driving along Sydney Road and I got a call from my boss and she said, Alice, do you have a minute to talk? And I just thought, okay, here we go. This was the last day of work. I'd just left the work Christmas party. And she said, so here's the thing. We've found a way to extend your contract for another year. And I was so, so flabbergasted. I was just like, how? Why? What the hell? We've had these six-month chunks of work and now all of a sudden I get a whole year of stability, of predictability. I know what's coming until February next year. I haven't had this situation for ages and ages. I mean, I've been freelance for like seven years until I got this part-time job. So... I'm in an amazing position right now because I, I actually know what the rest of 2023 is going to look like and, and into next year. And it means I can I can keep doing this and I don't have to worry about the work side of things. And I'm just so grateful. So even though tomorrow um, I'm going to be putting on the work drag and sitting in the team meeting and, you know, talking about things that might, I might not think are particularly important, I am not dreading it and I feel 
so lucky to be able to say that. At the same time, though, I've had a, a really sweet couple of weeks of just sitting around reading. I've read so many books. I've had to read books because I've been reading for this prize, but it's shown me just how much reading I can get done if I have a big stretch of uninterrupted time. And you know what else I did? I actually did some writing. I actually got out some drafts and I did a bit of work on them. And the other thing I did was I picked up one of my versification manuals, James McCauley's A Primer on English Versification, which is actually pretty fantastic. Josh was right. I don't know why I ever doubted him. It's very readable. It's very practical. And it seems to line up with everything that Josh taught me in the classes that we did last year. So I'm very slowly working my way through that. I'm starting to understand a little bit more about the difference between stress and meter and what the various kinds of lines are. And it's pretty exciting. And even though I'm not dreading going back to work tomorrow, there is there is a little bit of melancholy realizing that time is about to become interrupted again. And that ability to just stay with the thought for a couple of days uh, in between, you know, doing the laundry and the washing up and all that kind of stuff, like just to be able to stay in one mode, I'm going to lose that momentum again. And that's, that is just the way that it is. But I do get to keep making the show. So that's nice. That's very nice. On that, I'm going to put together my Ask Me Anything episode next week. So if you have a question for that, email me, poetrysayspod at gmail.com. I've got a couple of really, really juicy questions that probably could take up an entire episode on their own, but I'd love a few more. So please do send those through. Ask me anything you like. I had a, a really beautiful moment on New Year's Eve. We ended up going to this house party uh, with a bunch of young folk. I don't know if they were that much younger than us, but I felt like we were close to the oldest people there. <laughs> there were uh, various substances being handed around and there, was, there were glitter cannons and at one point they were playing um, the theme from White Lotus, which was very, very weird. <laughs> But early on in the night, this guy sat down next to me. I don't think I said that I was a poet. Maybe somebody else mentioned that. But in a moment that felt like it was out of some kind of dream or a conversation I would have inside my own head, this this beautiful young man turned to me and said, Oh, I want to know more about Australian poetry. Tell me more. Tell me about Australian poetry. What's, what is it? What's been going on there? I, I want to, I really want to understand more about it. And so <laughs> trying to keep my answer to under three minutes, I got to give him this little kind of potted history of like what Australian poetry was and is and maybe will be. And uh, he actually listened, and it was fucking beautiful. <laughs> that was that was my New Year's Eve. 
but it took me, yeah, probably about 48 hours to recover. We got home at 2 a.m. Far too late for me, far too late. Even though I've been really quiet, I have had a couple of lovely interactions with listeners, and one of those was the wonderful Aaron from my Freeverse workshop that I did last year. I've been chatting to those guys, just trying to get a sense of what it would take to go back to New York this year, what that would look like, if there's something I could structure that trip around. If you've got any ideas, please let me know. I, I, feel, like, I feel like it's time. Um, but yeah, I've been chatting to those guys and they've, there's actually been some real wins in that group. Like, I knew it was an impressive class. Uh, I definitely felt like everybody had some real skill. But, um, yeah, someone's been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Uh, someone else got into mascara, which is fiendishly difficult to do. So, yeah, just just an impressive little crew there. And I heard from Aaron, who said, off the back of my Fury episode that he ordered and has almost finished Steve Scafidi's book, which is called To the Bramble and the Briar. I mentioned in that Fury episode the poem To Whoever Set My Truck on Fire, which is just so great. And Aaron said he also ordered The Jaguar by Sarah Holland Batt off the back of listening to my episode with her. And, and a couple of people have done this. They've got in touch and said, oh, I listened to that interview and now I've ordered that poet's book. And I never expect that. I mean, I know that sometimes that's what this show ends up being, is a discussion of a poet's most recent work. I do, believe it or not, I try to sort of steer away from that because there are enough shows that do that. But the fact that people are actually going out and buying books after listening to me, I mean, what more could I ask for? That's fantastic. So thank you, Aaron. It's lovely to hear from you and Kate as well and everyone in the Freeverse workshop. Can't wait to see you guys. Can't wait to hang out. So in response to my request for questions for an Ask Me Anything episode, I got some fantastic questions from Anna. Anna from Canada. Anna had a couple of questions, and one of them I'm actually going to save for the actual AMA, but I wanted to spend some time with the first question she asked me, which is a big one. She wanted to know what poems have stayed with me the longest. To set this up, Anna sent me a little passage from an essay by the Canadian philosopher Jan Zwicky. I love that we had a phase wiki over here and there's a Jan Zwicky over there. So Zwicky, Jan Zwicky is talking here about this idea of the shock of meaning that we get from really good poems. And she writes, A great poem offers us this shock. It is always fresh because each time we read it, our minds experience a gestalt shift with a payoff. Truth. Recognize, then does not mean see the same old, same old. It means recognize. That is, experience the shift in gestalts. To be a lyric artist is to have a capacity for this sort of structural insight, plus the ability not simply to state the insight, but to show it, to create something that allows other minds to experience the same shift. 
And Anna unpacked that a little bit more for me. She said, again, here is this idea that there is an active element in truth. Something about motion in the experience of meaning as a sense of revelation. And really good poems are able to elicit this sense repeatedly over time. They travel well. And not revealing their secrets all at once is key to preserving that sense of ongoing wonder and insight. Here is one of those points that seem to me to intersect with our attraction to magic. Gestalt insight as sudden and unexpected revelation that preserves a necessary mystery and beauty which keeps us fascinated. So, let's do it. Can I have a round of applause for my lovely assistant, Miss Debbie McGee? She always helps me, and she's here tonight. Thank you, Debbie. Now, she has to do something very strange, the strange slopes, as it always did in those days. So they used to lower something at the back for the magician to stand on, and then the table did not escape, and the orchestra finished up doing the act. Now, children, if you are viewing, this is important. That is not a vase, a vase, or a vase. That is a hat, a top hat. Nowadays, nobody wears them. As soon as we start to talk about poetry as a magic trick, I have this morning light that goes off in my head that's like somebody has talked about that before. I can't think of who it is. I feel like I'm referencing a very old idea. But regardless, that is such an excellent way to express what a good poem feels like. And with a magic trick, a card trick or something that happens on stage, even if you know how it happens, you can still appreciate the skill with which it's pulled off. As I was reading this, I was thinking about that production that came out a couple of years ago called In and of Itself, which was a film of a stage production I think it's an hour or so long um, magic show by a guy called Derek Delgadio. And because it's happening on screen and you're not actually in the theatre, you do have to keep forcing yourself to remember that there are no special effects. Everything that you're seeing is actually happening in real time. And so much of it is beyond comprehension. It's very weird. It's very sad throughout the whole thing Derek just seems like he's on the verge of tears and it builds to this really really moving final piece where he essentially where it seems like he can read the audience's minds you know if that were a poem I would be reading it and and just reeling thinking I have no idea how he's done any of this that's how I feel when I read poets like Pam Brown when I read Ken Bolton, uh, Ray Armantrout came up this morning in, in the Slee Ricketts group chat. She would be a poet that when I read her, I, I just think, I, I don't know how she's done this. Like, how the hell has she put this thing together? If I tried to do this, it would look so clunky. <laughs> but then there are those poems that the more you get to know them, the more you can, you can see the structure of the trick. You can see how it's been put together. You can see all the pieces, but you can still appreciate them over and over again. Like Jan Zwicky says, you experience that shift, that payoff, that recognition every time you read it. You stay fascinated, as Anna puts it. 
That was the top hat. Oh, and the trick was dead easy. Pulling a rabbit from a hat was really easy. Because in those days, they had a different fashion again. They had fat sleeves, not this thin stuff. So all they had to do was this. All they had to do was they just leaned on a piece of scenery. And once they were on the scenery like that, they would talk. And as they talked away, someone would drop a rabbit down the sleeve. See? Oh, it's true. This is where the expression obviously comes from, rabbiting on. I don't know if a poem needs a sense of revelation to be one that will last. I don't know if this is totally necessary. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking a lot about the poet Dorothy Porter and about the fact that so many of her poems were so immediately visible. Everything is there on the surface for you. And I know that in her case, that was very intentional. And I think she said somewhere that the further she got into her writing life, the less patience she had for any kind of trickery or obfuscation of any kind. Here's just an example. This is her poem, Blue Bottles, which is from the Bee Hut. In living, there is always the terror of being stung, of something coming for you on the unavoidable wave. In living, there is always the terror of the alien boneless thing, of something blue coming for you in the blue and salty sea, spat on your bare and shrinking skin. In living, there is always the terror of the poison finding your heart, of something whose stingers will stretch over you like stars with an ancient burning patience. To me, that seems really effective but there's not much of a magic trick in there. When I read this collection for the first time, that was the poem that stood out to me, and that's the one that I have returned to a couple of times. But is there a moment of revelation? I don't know. I don't think so. I think one of the things that makes me most frustrated when I talk to other poets is the sense of someone having closed their mind to new possibilities. Someone who's decided this is what's good, that's going to be true forever, I've, I've made up my mind now and I'm not open to any new information. I really like being proved wrong and I like that sense of a poem's meaning changing over time as my perspective changes as I start to think different things and believe different things, I like that I can go back to work that I thought was brilliant and start to see that maybe it's not so brilliant and to start to appreciate other things that I didn't quite get the first time. I mean, you've met those people who were never wrong. They're really hard to be around for any length of time. It's good to be wrong about stuff. It's good to be proven wrong. The things that I thought when I was 20 are not the things that I believe now. Like I genuinely used to think that it was a cool and good thing that I only had male friends. I used to think that another person could give me the artistic confidence that I wanted that someone else's validation could fill that gap. And I used to think that if I did what I actually wanted to do with my life, I would get in trouble 
and the people who I relied on for love and support would stop loving me. But I was wrong about all those things. In terms of poetry, I think for a long time I carried around the idea that if I liked one poem by someone, then necessarily I had to like all their poems. So when I first came across Terence Hayes, for example, I saw him read and I was so impressed and bought his collection and read it with sort of an uneasy sense of kind of knowing in my gut that I didn't like a lot of this stuff, but but feeling like I had to. It's like I, I, I thought if I admitted that some of it was a bit rocky and a bit rough, then uh, I don't know, maybe I was wrong about all of it. On the other hand, a poet like Les Murray, not an easy poet to read, not somebody that I pull down from the shelf too often. For ages I've thought, this is not somebody that I feel like I can warm to. The word that Fazewicki uses in that essay from The Liar in the Pawn Shop is excluded. I just finished Helen Garner's Yellow Notebook and she quotes that exact same sentence. Wiki says, why after all this effort do I still feel excluded from this work? But there are a couple of Murray poems that I've I've come to like. I've I've really warmed to them. So it's good to be a little bit wrong. It's good to have shifts in your thinking. But then there are those poems like Anna is referencing in her question that will just stay with you. And every time you see the magic trick, it works. Maybe you understand exactly how it's done, but it still has that sense of revelation. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. His eyes would flash, he would catch every eye in the theatre. And why? Because he had a big bulge here going like this. He would approach the hat, straighten his arm, the rabbit would go zonk into the bottom of there. Zonk, and it would pull a little rabbit with there, like that. Thinking my agent promised me a part in Watership Down, and here I am now. So tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I should like to present for you all the world-famous rabbit from a hat. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love. I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not hard to master, though it may look like. Write it like disaster. Yep, every time. 
every time. There are a number of poems that have stuck with me and also honestly just just at the line level there are just lines that stick in my mind the first poem i was ever properly introduced to was wilfred owen's dolce decorum est and the line from that that got me was an ecstasy of fumbling realizing you could do something like that with language was very exciting to me at 14 years old and lines from five bells as well by Kenneth Slessor. The cross hangs upside down in water. That one comes to me randomly. In Robert Frost's Mending Wall as well, which is a poem that I, I used to have down, like I used to have most of that memorized. It's all gone now, but uh, the line that comes to me from that is where he says, He is all pine and I am apple orchard. Don't know why, it's just there. It's just stuck with me. But in terms of a full poem, where the magic trick is the same, is just as amazing every time, I think it's got to be One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. I remember being introduced to it in a workshop at the ACT Writer Centre. No idea who that teacher was, but she took the workshop seriously enough that she brought in some, some classics and some examples of contemporary people who were writing around us and got us to look at those as well as to write and share our own stuff and I remember looking at one art and thinking that's pretty cool that's a cool little pattern how how's that working I didn't really feel much I definitely didn't understand when she says write it at the end I I didn't really get why she did that but it lodged somewhere in my memory. I probably would have been about 25 when I took that workshop. I knew almost nothing about what it was to lose people, places, things. But of course, as I got older, started to have a few experiences along those lines and started to appreciate the magic trick on a different level. And the poem started to do things to me. When I read it, I, I couldn't get through it without tearing up. And I also started to understand more about the form of the villanelle and that this was a very, very difficult thing to pull off and that one art might be one of the only examples where it really works. And then as more time passed, I started to know more about who Bishop herself was, to understand biographically what those losses that she's talking about in the poem actually were. And so then I had a better understanding of her tone because when I first read it, I took it as almost like a defensive stance, like I can lose all this stuff and I'll still be fine. But now I have the opposite understanding. And I understand that this is a poem of defeat. It's impossible to bear these losses that she's talking about. She's never going to master it. Every single one of them is a disaster. 
At least that's where I am with it now. But I know it's going to continue to unfold and change and shift, but that every time I read it, there'll be that payoff, that moment of truth. Like Jan Zwicky says, she's created something that allows other minds to experience the same shift. The moment we have all been waiting for. Especially me. Rabbi Maha! Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm really sorry. They see, that's not supposed to be there at all. That's supposed to be on a hook, right around, around the back of the table, you see, like that. And then what to do, you put it there. Before I go, I want to talk a little bit about what I want to do this year, given that I now have this huge, luxurious um, stretch of, I mean, you know, I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to tempt fate, but it feels like I have a whole bunch of predictable um, time ahead of me where I, I can plan a little bit for the first time in God knows how long. feels like I can actually plan things out. So that feels really good and I've been thinking about what does this mean for the show because obviously I very, very much want to keep making it. I feel very lucky that I get to do it. There is also a side to it which is difficult. I have had uh, feedback in the past and more recently that's been less than positive um, and that, when that happens that, that really rattles me. But what I've realized, and I actually came to this through talking to Sarah Holland Bat the other month, um, is that you can only be knocked off course if what you're doing is somehow not, not in line with your real priorities and what you, what you really think you should be doing. By which I mean, if I'm, if I'm making this to somebody else, if I am trying to please some imagined audience member or if I'm trying to um, get poetry points with some imaginary clique or or school or coterie or something like that, then, then of course when the criticism comes through, I'm going to feel shitty because it's like, well, I didn't even mean that really and, and now I'm getting attacked for it. So <laughs> uh, I, I need to make sure that I am making stuff here that actually that I fully believe in and stand behind and you know it's weird because you would think that that would just be like a natural thing that you would do anyway but uh, at least for me it's it's easy sometimes to get distracted and to get pulled in certain directions by other people so what that actually looks like practically speaking I am still thinking through one of the consistent things that, that I do hear from people who write to me is I really like it when it's just you. <laughs> but when I look at the stats, people come and listen for the interviews. So I need to keep both. But for now, there might be a little bit more of me than there is of other people. It's also January, so the, the, nobody's here. Like everybody's just gone and and more power to them. Uh, I hope it's a long, long time before you have to go back to work. If you're already there, hey, I am too. Uh, one last reminder, do send me through any questions you have for my Ask Me Anything episode and that should be coming out next week. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you then.